Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast that believes that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host for this week's extra show, Stefan Rolnick, and I am joined by my colleague, Stephanie Lloyd. Hi, Stefan. So let's kick off with what is actually quite a serious and depressing news story on the back of a really busy week of news. This week, police have launched an investigation into the UKIP candidate, Carl Benjamin, over rape threats that he made to Birmingham Yardley MP, Jess Phillips. Emboldened by these despicable comments, members of the public then approached Jess in the street outside Parliament and directed more verbal abuse towards her. Um, Steph, have we reached a situation where this guy could literally be elected to the European Parliament? Well, I mean, being a woman in politics has been very, very difficult. It's it's always been difficult. It is uh, a, a nasty, nasty place for um, for women to be at times, and particularly if you're someone as uh, powerful, as vocal against issues of misogyny and standing up for the rights of women as Jess has always so consistently been. And it does sadly make you even more of a target for the victims of abuse. And it's really, really difficult, right? Because we've seen kind of, you know, Jess this week has been amazing in terms of the way that she's dealt with this. It's been a horrendous week to kind of watch this happen to one of our most amazing advocates for progressive politics in parliament and in the country today. But, you know, there are those times then as well where you think, oh, should, should I not be talking about it? And there was a period of time and I saw kind of Jess tweeted this week saying that, you know, there's a period of time where every single one of us has thought, is it worth talking about this? Like, is this something we should stop talking about? Does it give them more power? Does it embolden them to go even further? And actually the conclusion she came to was like, absolutely not. Like we blame ourselves as women in politics, as as victims of misogyny and harassment. We blame ourselves in the fact that this has happened. And the most important and powerful thing that we are seeing this week is, is how many people are rallying around Jess and against this man and his vile, vile abuse. And, you know, let's even take it further than outside of just just this incident and and the kind of things that he said about Jess and and, and to her is he is standing to be an elected representative for the people of this country in an international institution. And should he be able to do that? No, I don't think he should. 
And I think if you incite that level of violence and misogyny towards someone, you should have no place in public office in our life and what we do. And there's there's a big debate that's erupting about that at the moment. But I do think it is it is a terrifying prospect and it is utterly symptomatic of the divisiveness and the kind of hate-filled rhetoric that we currently have filling our politics and filling our political space right now. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the specific case, but also the wider context that it sits in. And, you know, I know there were young Jewish women in my family who saw when Luciana Berger felt like she could no longer, she no longer felt welcome in the Labour Party, that kind of impact it has to see that happen before your eyes if you're a young person coming up and asking yourself whether politics is somewhere where you belong. Are we in danger of turning off a whole generation of young women from politics? So uh, there's an argument that that could be true. It is certainly not a, a pleasant thing to kind of sit and watch. And it is something where you go, is this something I really want to put myself through? For me, I think this is why Jess is such an unbelievable advocate for women in politics, because despite everything else, she's utterly human in her response. She's not hidden away from how upsetting it's been. She's not hidden away from the fact that, you know, she walked through Birmingham city centre in floods of tears when she saw that he'd said these things. But also she's utterly determined to keep going because what it is that we are, you know, what it is that she is trying to achieve is is so unbelievably necessary for this country that she doesn't want to do it. And, you know, are we living in a really divisive time in politics? Yes, we are. And that's why every single member of parliament, every single person who is interacting or in and around politics in any way, whether that's a commentator or or an activist, has a huge responsibility to be better and to behave better. And I mean, like for an example, right, I was sat on, um, I did the election night coverage for a little bit on LBC. And I mean, it was like half past three in the morning, right? So I was pretty tired in and of itself. And I was sat there next to the guy who was the chairman of UKIP. And he literally said the words, the problem is with UKIP at the moment is that we're too moral. <laughs> at which point, like, I mean, every single person in the studio like nearly fell off of their chair. That's including some great Ian reaction. <laughs> but including Ian Dale being like, I'm sorry, too moral? Are you are you sure? Um, but the reason why is that there is an utter delusionness in terms of their politics. And and like this man should not be on the ballot box in and of itself. He is pumped out racism, misogyny, homophobia online for years on his YouTube channel. And the fact that, you know, UKIP think that that is a man that should be on their sleigh says it all. But, you know, it is a testament to kind of who UKIP are as a party. But it is also important that we unilaterally as a country reject that. And I think that is the that is the kind of danger. And it's, it's always the argument that people use around a second referendum, right? They're like, politics has got so divisive now, we need to just run away from it and we need to hide from democracy. The only way to, to move past this is to shine a light on what the problem is and to and to win the argument at the ballot box. And and that's the thing that we've got to do going forward. I think there was there's two things there. I think you mentioned, you know, this guy was a YouTuber. I think there's a there's a whole world of policy you can get into there. I've been in a situation where I watched one interview, I think that Helen Lewis did with that Jordan Peterson guy who's quite into talking about masculinity and a lot of men's rights activists, um, you know, follow him very closely. And you watch one interview that Helen Lewis did with him and then suddenly the YouTube algorithms are like, have you ever considered sexism? Like, And I think mm. people, you know, are getting stuck in these wormholes and getting dragged down further and further and further into this really ugly world. But also, 
you mentioned Jess's reaction and how she's been so open and transparent about how it's affected her. And I think this question of how we beat these people was one that you touched on. And I'd really like you to expand on that because I think one of the things that struck me about Jess's reaction is how powerful a vulnerability is. And I think it's been, it's just been a huge demonstration of her personal strength to be able to be that vulnerable in public. And I think maybe if there's one good thing that comes from this awful situation is that our, our idea of what real leadership is expands to what it should be, which is about vulnerability and strength. Well, that's it. it. She's just a person and she's an amazingly powerful woman. But also the problem is it's really difficult, right? Because also as a woman in politics, I sit there and I'm like, we shouldn't have to put these women through this. We shouldn't have to have people like Jess literally sacrifice so much and deal with so much in order to be able to move forward. But unfortunately, in the in the, the kind of struggles and fights that we've had for equality over decades in in this country that is something that people have had to do and it is nasty and it is unpleasant, but it is unfortunately the majority of the way of which these huge advances in equality and the shifts that we have in people's, you know, public consciousness and perceptions have changed. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that is why she is who she is in that sense, because she has that ability to just go, yes. And it was apologies, shit. Like (laughs) it is awful to read those things. And yes, I cried because someone is saying such vile, vile acts of of hatred towards it. And let's and let's call it what it is as well. This is about someone trying to exert power over someone else. That is what that level of extreme violence and sexual violence is. It is about power and nothing else. And it's about saying, I don't like the fact that people like you and women like you have all this power now, and I'm going to do everything I can to put you back in that box. And the thing that I thought was so powerful, which is not just that it is not just that Jess is on her own. It is you saw literally hundreds of thousands of women pile in behind her and go, we are with you. It is not just you on your own. This country is changing and it is changing for the better. And I think that is what was so kind of, you know, it was utterly heartbreaking to watch it this week, but also really powerful to watch the amount of solidarity that, that people have shown to each other. And if at any point your, you know, petty factionalism or party politics kind of tries to get in the way of this stuff, like look back on yourself and think of what you're doing. Because right now as a woman who is trying to do so much for so many people in this country, uh, and if all you want to do is belittle her, then you probably shouldn't be in politics. Well, all that has been happening on the backdrop of a European election campaign. And so we should probably talk about Labour. Is... We should always talk about Brexit, Stefan, yeah. because a day <laughs> doesn't go by far. if we don't talk about Brexit. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so let's continue with the, you know, the dystopia and get into the details of Labour's European election campaign. Um, I think it's fair to say it's been a rocky start um, <laughs> as two people are quite involved in campaigning on the ground and speaking to people, speaking to local people where we live in South London, there's a lot of um, EU citizens there and the mixture of confusion on the side of EU citizens and a mixture of disappointment and confusion for activists about what we stand for. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess, what do you make of the launch so far? Well, I was sat there watching it um, today and I was, I, was, I was slightly confused by the whole thing, to be honest. I mean, even just kind of in and of itself. It was a bit of an odd setup. It was quite a small 
number of people that were there. It didn't really feel like it had the energy enthusiasm that you've necessarily seen with Jeremy Corbyn giving his big speeches. Maybe I think that says probably more about the enthusiasm he actually has for the European elections. Um, but there were some really interesting points in it. So I think it was quite interesting to note that he mentioned that Labour had voted to trigger Article 50 very early on. He really was kind of going quite quite hard on the fact that Labour isn't a party of Remain. And that was kind of really what he was pushing through. And in the first kind of questions that came afterwards, Laura Koonsberg asked that very question of, you know, you say that you don't want to be for the 42 or the, uh, for the for the 48 or the 52%, where is it, you know, is Labour a party of Remain anymore? What are you saying? Or is it a party of Leave? And he really kind of refused to answer it. And I think that says it all in and of itself. And he, you know, he talks about how he wants Labour to bring the whole country together. But putting your head in the sand and pretending that there isn't a choice to make isn't going to bring the party together. And, you know, he mentioned that almost all of the Labour MPs had voted for Brexit in one form or another. And he made it very clear that, you know, the Brexit party isn't a Brexit party. It's a no-deal Brexit party. And he was really over-egging that idea of how bad, like, you know, he was really going for the fact that no deal is what they were arguing for. And we're kind of arguing for a better Brexit, which I think is quite, you know, it kind of rolls back quite a lot further than even our European manifesto says. And I think, again, this is where the real tensions kind of come with that. He was talking quite a lot about the the kind of negotiations that they've currently got going on with the government. And he was very much blaming them for the fact it wasn't going any further and how it's very difficult, one, to negotiate with a government that's disintegrating. I kind of have a level of sympathy for them for that. <laughs> but also that they're not moving any of their red lines. So, you know, it is, there was a kind of nod to a people's vote or a confirmatory ballot, however we want to kind of describe it now. But I mean, it was it was a nod at the end of a sentence and then he moved kind of quite swiftly back into it. So there are going to be real tensions that I think come up because of this, because he may not think that Labour is a party of Remain or pro-European in that sense, but the membership do, the MPs do, the MEP candidates do, and our voters do. So Yes, there are some Labour Leave voters. They are far in the minority of Labour Remain voters. And even when you look at the Labour Leave voters, that is very low down on their list of, of priorities. Yeah, I think I think there's two things, isn't there? There's the how Labour is sorting themselves out internally and that kind of internal debate and the debate that we're having with the parties around us. I think <laughs> the Labour not being a party of Remain. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn can come to my local constituency, Vauxhall, which is home to well-known uh, WTO proponent Kate Hoey and he can ask whether it's a party of Remain because it certainly is. You can have the debate about how you balance being the party of Remain with how you make the argument to the country but is this, there's this kind of weird thing about we're just interested in kind of meeting people where they are and then not trying to bring them with us. And I, I completely accept the argument. And there's a lot of MPs in Parliament who've made this argument really well. Um, you know, Lisa Nandy, um, Caroline Flint talking about how we can't just pretend that this didn't happen, but that's not mutually exclusive with being a party full of activists who still believe and remain. And I think, I mean, there were some interesting things, right? So you mentioned, you know, we spoke, and obviously it was, this was the manifesto launch in that sense. And it was then almost utterly baffling when you looked. So they did their kind of manifesto launch and that was kind of mid-morning in terms of how that worked. And then the kind of politics programmes kick in for the day. So you've got things like BBC's Politics Live. And Andrew Neil, they did a whole segment then on Labour's manifesto launch. And he was like, and now we're going to go and talk to uh, a Labour MP uh, and, and learn more about Labour's manifesto. And he went, actually, 
No, we're not. Because for the first time in my entire journalistic career, they're refusing to put anybody up. And the idea that we would launch a manifesto, of which, to be fair, the majority of, of the kind of information in it isn't even about Europe, um, and then also not put anybody up, which was remarkable in terms of, you know, our ability to kind of believe in what it is that we're saying and want to kind of sell that to the country. If we're not even to go and willing to do it ourselves, it seems somewhat bizarre that uh-huh. people are going to trust us. But then it was even weirder when they were then asking a Conservative minister... And she was like, and they were like, well, when will the Conservatives be? And she was like, I don't even know if we're going to write one. So we could have a situation where the two main parties, one of which refuses to even write a manifesto and the other of which refuses to do any actual real public, like publicity and promotion and, and kind of commentary and debate on what that manifesto is. And, you know, I know that nobody wanted to do these elections, but also they are happening. And there is a level of responsibility that both of those parties have, of which in the last election had 80% vote share for each, like, for them between themselves to actually tell the country what they think and what they want to do about this. Um, And I think this is why people are getting fed up of that. And so there's a lot of big questions there. I think one of the interesting questions as well is about um, how we defeat the far right and the Brexit party in these elections. And some people have made the case, and I think I certainly believe this. um, I know Tom Watson and a lot of other MPs have been making this case that the best way to actually take on Farage is to take that public vote stance to the country and make the argument for it and actually deliver clarity on it. I mean, did you see anything today in the launch that kind of put forward a vision for how we're going to win the argument against these people, like the no-deal Brexiters and the far right? No, not really. If I'm honest, I didn't. And particularly when it got to the kind of Q&A, Jeremy felt very weak in terms of what he wanted to say. And obviously, we know that this isn't a terrain that he's particularly comfortable on. Brexit is not what he really likes discussing. It's not something he's passionate about. Even Emily Thornbury said this. It's not It's not his thing. Um, but the problem is, is he's the leader of the opposition and it is the biggest issue affecting the country. So, I mean, the, the best way in order to defeat the far right in this election coming up is by going out there, registering people to vote and winning the arguments on how that on how that happens and how, you know, the issues that people, you know, were genuinely very honestly voting, you know, they thought mattered and, you know, the problems that they have with the country that were really valid that that they voted on in the last referendum were the makings of of the UK and not and not of Brussels. And my biggest fear is that it does, you know, the farages of this world will sweep up at this election because of the utter inability and kind of paralysation of the two main parties currently. And like you say, politics. And, and the local election showed that. <laughs> you know, both it was it was a plague on both of your houses and obviously hugely worse for the Conservative Party. But the idea that you can sit there, say nothing, try and be all things to all people and not really show any leadership... It's never going to be. Well, people are looking for clarity and tomorrow on Saturday, the 11th of May, we'll be at TUC Congress House for Progress Annual Conference. Oh, look at his segue. (laughs) Look at his segue and a plug. (laughs) (laughs) Segue and a plug in one. Um, So we'll be looking for clarity tomorrow at Progress Annual Conference. Um, Got a really jam-packed lineup. I've got to say, we've been putting this together over the last few weeks and I'm genuinely, I know this sounds really lame, I'm genuinely really excited about it. We've got policy discussions on all kinds of things. We've got great panels talking about what ne- what's next for Labour. We've got Jess Phillips coming to deliver the keynote in a question and answer town hall style um, keynote. Uh, 
Go on, Steph. What are you most looking forward to tomorrow? What should people look out for? Why should people get those tickets last minute? Well, I mean, they absolutely should. One, just because, I mean, Jess in and of herself is going to be absolutely on fire. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about the kind of abuse that she faces and the things that she has to deal with. The thing that for me inspires me so much about what she does is what she has to say and how she wants to see the world change and how she wants to do that in a way that really brings progressive values to life. So, I mean, if if, if you need any more reason than Jess Phillips, fine. Um, but there not. are going to be some amazing sessions. And I think, you know, we've got charities like Safe Passage coming and doing workshops on why refugees live, why refugee lives matter and how we need a really fair immigration system and one that actually, you know, is a humane immigration system. And um, we've got, you know, debates on intergenerational fairness and, and what we do in terms of our kind of imbalanced economy going forwards. We've got sessions um, on how we tackle the rise of the far right. Something we've been talking about a lot recently. We've got people from, you know, people like Matthew McGregor from Hope Not Hate coming and doing that. So, you know, there is there is so much policy debate that's going to be happening. It's so much about the challenges that we face as a country, the ideas that we need to do in order to kind of combat these kind of rising kind of, you know, forces of hatred and division that we've got in the country. And, you know, for us as, uh, as progress, it's a really big restart in terms of who we are, the kind of challenges that we want to be meeting head on and how we need to change as well as an organisation to be able to really meet those challenges. So I'm absolutely buzzing for it. I think it's going to be really good. And, you know, we've got, we've nearly sold out on tickets, but if you still want to get yours, you still can. Um, and if you use the code POD19, that is POD19, <laughs> uh, you can you can get £5 off your ticket as well. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a great day. And we've got hundreds of people already signed up. So it would be great to see even more of you there. Well, I can already hear people picking up their laptops and furiously typing away to get those tickets, so we won't keep them for much longer. But Steph, good to chat. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was one in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer caroline crampton mm-hmm.